Hello and welcome to the Leaders Team podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Leaders Team at Twinkle, where we chat about all things teaching and leading. As former teachers and leaders in schools ourselves, we want to amplify the voices of those in and out of the teaching profession and share the incredible things they're doing to make education a better place for everyone. In this episode, I talked to Carl Pupay about teaching Generation Z. One of my favourite phrases, this is one I've adopted, is that we're teaching 21st century children in 18th century classrooms. If I had a time machine, if I had a TARDIS, and I went back to Victorian London uh, uh, at the start of our modern education system, and I took a Victorian teacher and said, come with me and I'm going to take you to a school. Apart from the whiteboard and maybe the speakers, he would understand exactly the context he was in, and he probably could teach the same way. Carl is a qualified classroom teacher with a decade of experience across the primary, secondary and further education sectors. He specialises in behaviour management and has designed and facilitated rehabilitation classes for young people who have been excluded from mainstream education. His blog, The Action Hero Teacher Blog, was ranked as one of the top 10 education blogs in the UK and Learning Ladders, a partnership of Twinkle, have awarded his Action Hero Teacher book as one of the best top 40 books for educators in summer 2021. In September 2021, Carl was awarded a fellowship into the prestigious Royal Society of Arts, Manufacture and Commerce for his work on the Action Hero Teacher and his workshops for well-being for young people. Carl is a passionate educator and that is clear in this interview. I love chatting with him about his ideas and his book which focuses on Generation Z and what he thinks the future of education should look like. This is a great episode and particularly important for school leaders to hear what Carl has to say. So here comes the next episode, Teaching Generation Z. Hi Carl, welcome to the Leaders Team podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. I'm nursing a bit of man flu at this time of recording, but I'm okay. Man flu is not COVID. I've tested, all right? So don't get on to me. But thank you for having me anyway. <laughs> Bless you. No, it's fine. I'm glad I'm glad it's not COVID, but I'm I hope that you uh, start feeling better soon. It's the classic half term lurgy, isn't it? Often teachers find themselves with. Exactly. You can't get away from it, can you? You no. think you've got away with it. I feel like, you know, Al Pacino and Godfather 3, you know, whenever I think I've got out, they pull me back in. That's how I'm feeling. <laughs> so I'm fine. I'm nursing. I've got my cranberry juice next to me. I am fine. I'm fine. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. A bit of lemon juice. I think I've actually, I take lemon juice every morning and I think that's the reason why I haven't had a cold in so long, but I'm going to touch, look, touch wood and mm. hope that that is the case. Anyway, enough about that. <laughs> no problem. Um, Carl, it is so good to have you on this podcast today. I've been reading about you. I've been following you. I've been kind of um, following the work that you do. And I, and I recently read uh, this ebook that you sent me, which was uh, all about teaching Generation Z. And we're going to talk mm -hmm. about that today. But I'm really interested to start off with about how you got into teaching in the first place. So if you could give us a little kind of round history of, of no you, that would be great. Uh, no problem. For the record, uh, a bit controversially, I never wanted to be a teacher. Um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people say that, so don't worry, a lot of people say that. You guys on the podcast, you're going to think, who is this guy? Um, I'll be very honest. I'm very, very honest. Um, I fell into it, to be absolutely honest with you. Um, so before I worked in the private sector, I got made redundant twice. And uh, it wasn't a nice experience. So I thought I need something safer. No, I'm kidding. That's half the reason. Um, so I worked in sales before, but I didn't feel satisfied internally. 
Uh, this is the very teach the teach first uh, spiel here, but it's the truth. I didn't feel satisfied. So I started off in a weird way. I didn't go through the PGCE process. I started off as a youth worker in a music studio. Long story, which I won't bore you with. So I, I did that. Um, I was working with a lot of disadvantaged kids in East London. And then basically, uh, my manager at the time, his name was Matt, lovely guy. He said, look, you're really good with the kids. Why don't you earn you know, qualifications? You might as well. You're doing it already. You are teaching them. So I went up the ranks and I got something called the Dettles, which is a diploma in teaching in the lifelong learning sector, which was in the FE. Um, it's called the D DEET now, I believe. And I got my QTLS, which gave me parity to uh, work with people, you know, work in mainstream schools. Um, so I started off as a mentor, then I became a qualified teacher, then I became something called a NEETS coordinator. Um, and NEETS stands for not in education, employment or training. And basically, um, what my responsibility was, was to try and get these young people who have been usually kicked out of two mainstream schools into some form of employment or education, because statistics showed that they were 80% more likely to either be a victim of or perpetrator of antisocial behavior. We're talking gangs, we're talking drugs, we're talking guns, we're talking country lines, we're talking trafficking. Um, and I was working at the time in a place called the Isle of Dogs, which is right next to Canary Wharf. And at the time, 25% of all acid attacks were taking place in that particular, basically Tower Hamlets and um, the Isle of Dogs. And I always laughed in my head because I had to cut, go through Canary West, uh, Canary Wharf, not Canary West. Mm -hmm. That's a new one, Canary West. Trademark that somebody, <laughs> Canary Wharf. And I always laughed because Canary Wharf is the epitome of economic power in the UK and rich people, well, I shouldn't say rich people, very affluent jobs. And literally two stops away, it was one of the poorest places or poorest boroughs in the UK. I always found that dichotomy mm -hmm. very strange. Yeah. So I did that for a while. Um, but because of uh, the government and good old David Cameron, um, all the funding got cut, unfortunately. This was the time when uh, David Cameron said, uh, we're going to have a million apprenticeships. And what I didn't realise was that um, at the time, I was still kind of new into it. Uh, the Department of Education, their budget is ring-fenced, meaning that the, the, the government can't take a billion pounds to put it in the nhs for example they have to it has to be minimally funded but we fell under something called the bis for this for the life of me i always forget what it stands for business something and something but basically this is further education higher education so the government robbed peter to pay paul and all of a sudden all the extra provision alternative provision had to be stripped down i don't know if you remember that mm. and basically um the youth centers which still haven't recovered um, was stripped down i remember saying to my colleague so i came in work one day they say you've only got three months left we've only got three months of funding left so we, we continue to work for three months uh and i remember saying when we we finally left the center there's going to be blood on the streets and before covid in a way a, a weird way i shouldn't say there, it's not really a silver lining of covid because it's obviously terrible all around but the, the knife attacks were dropping um the knife attacks were dropping and that's the only so-called quote-unquote good thing that was happening although they're starting to rise again because there were people like myself and my team and other people who are doing all that uh, pastoral work and instead of you know getting these guys into the youth centers getting these guys mediating problems so that's what happened so basically drifted into mainstream schooling um what became an ordinary teacher uh and I, I oh sorry what one last thing as well i got a lot of training from the yacht team from the police from cams child adolescent mental health services because we're dealing with very vulnerable young people so when I went into mainstream schooling and I spoke to a lot of my colleagues, they were like, wow, how do you do this? And you did this really well and that really well. And I was like, because I got trained and I realized my PGCE colleagues weren't as lucky as me to have that extensive amount of training and experience. 
I threw it all into a book with the action era teacher and the rest, as they say, is history. And a lot of great things have happened off the back of that. So now I'm a consultant as well. So that's just a whistle-stop tour of my career so far. I love it. And, you know, just kind of um, listening to your story and how you got into it, I actually think, and this is a conversation I have quite a lot with people, is that I find that, you know, that <clears throat> that life experience before you go into teaching is so valuable and it's not just life experience, it's the, it's the experience of being around young people in a very raw setting um, where it's not in a classroom. Uh, if you've done youth work before or you might have done something like kind of outreach type work with young people, uh, you get to... You get to, I suppose, collect skills, don't you, that Absolutely. they don't teach you on your PGCE or in teaching college or whatever it is, the, whatever route you go through. And then you also then you get the kind of teachers who do the very traditional route. So they go to university, then they do the teaching uh, qualification and then it's straight into the classroom. And when you're faced with scenarios which are outside of um, mm -hmm. the 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 expected i suppose that they don't that they don't show you in in teaching college um sure. it becomes a problem and it becomes harder i suppose and yeah. so i think it's great that you had all of that experience did you find that it helped you once you got into uh teaching absolutely absolutely i mean i i am so thankful that i went the way the route that i did um at the time i wasn't interested in teaching uh, as I said, it was more youth work and I was even thinking about becoming maybe a social worker. But as I said, it gave me a, an advantage over my colleagues because when I spoke to my colleagues, because again, I wasn't familiar with the PGCE or Schools Direct. And I said, you know, for example, your behavior management, you know, how much time did you, you know, spend on that? And some of my colleagues said, we'd be lucky if we got two, two weeks, like a two week module. And it's basically routines. And that was it. And I said, so you didn't learn any psychology, what not, what have you? And he said, no. And that's what inspired me to write the book, because I said a lot of teachers, I think the statistics stand that a third of teachers within five years quit the profession. And I think it's higher in London that half the teachers um, within five years quit the profession. And it's an absolute travesty, because if you, you've got to understand the context in which you're, you're, you're teaching. And of course, I'm a, I'm a Londoner. Uh, I know London very, very well. But if I went to Norfolk, or if I went to Scarborough or York, I will have to spend time to embed myself in that community and understand the issues of that particular community. One size does not fit all. So if you're, the teaching methods that you're taught is dependent on the context. So a lot of teachers are coming and think, oh, you know, just clap my hands and click my fingers. You do that with a, a 14, 15 year old inner city youth, they're, 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 they're going to have you for breakfast, dinner and lunch, mate. You know what I mean? So it's, it's this, uh, that it concerns me because a lot, I've seen teachers break down in tears I did supply teaching for a while. And the way that somebody it was like fresh meat, it was like something out of Jurassic Park. You know, when they're lying the cow into the Velociraptor pen and it was just like, it was like that. And I was very lucky. So yes, it gave me a lot of advantages over my colleagues. And I just wanted to share that knowledge because as I said, again, it's not just experience. It's actually, you know, every week or every other week, we had the, psycho the main lead for cams coming in, talking to us about how to deal with people with, you know, either personality disorders or deal with eating disorders or any type of, uh, you know, uh, disturbance or trauma. And these are important. And and what we, we don't realize is I think uh, the NSPCC said that one in three young people will have some form of a, a mental health emergency before they're 25. I think it's one in two because we've, we've all been in a collective trauma with COVID. So we now 
this line of teachers like that's not my job my job is just to teach the subject no that's 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 well that's gone now maybe before covid you can argue that but we are seeing children showing real signs of emotional distress i see that all the time so you might think it's bad behavior as i always say one of my favorite phrases is pain sorry um anger is the bodyguard of pain Right, I always think that, and especially um, not to be sexist, talking about young boys, what is more socially acceptable? Flipping a chair and swearing at a teacher or bursting into tears? For most young boys, that's not socially acceptable. So they, 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 they get angry, they kick doors or whatnot. But if you catch them by themselves, they're crying their eyes out because yeah. we're not looking at the trauma aspect of it. So that's why I'm really passionate about this, especially since, you know, what, what's going on in the world. Yeah, I um I hear you on that and I often get very frustrated when I hear about teachers who are very reactive to behavior uh in the classroom and their reactions are quite um abrupt to these young people. And I've always, I don't know, I'm not saying, you know, we're any better than other people, but I've sure. always gone from the stance of that behavior there's so much more behind what's going on in front of you than what you are perceiving to be happening so if that child is flipping a chair and throwing it and or or you know outburst in terms of a physical outburst mm-hmm. that's not them cho- why would you choose to do that that's not a choice in in a from a a considered point of view that is a trauma response absolutely um, from from the from the child and so often we find you know that child either gets sent out and then I was watching actually um something just recently and it was the I don't know if you saw it but it was this it was called seven and up and they basically no. filmed these group of children from the age of seven right oh yes the age of, uh, and every seven years they sure. revisited them right mm-hmm. and there was one particular scene where there was a child clearly with ADHD and mm. In the classroom, his teaching assistant is not only grabbing him to like sit mm. up straight, she's berating him and saying, you can't behave. You must be behaving like the other ones. Otherwise, you're not good and you must get on with your work. And I thought, wow, mm. you know, if someone was doing that these days and maybe they are some in some places and that's mm. really sad to hear. But, you know, that's not what this is. This is a sure. traumatized child or a tra- trauma response for feeling uncomfortable in this setting. And I know that you talk a little bit about this in your writing and in the work that you do about the generational changes, the, Mm. uh, the generation Z as we're going to call them. Um, Mm. uh, Who is generation Z? Let's just talk about that first, because I've got a lot to say about it. Let's talk about who is generation Z. Okay. No problem. I will say generation Z. I feel like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. I'm going to use the American, <laughs> I'm going to use the American uh, version. I get told off about this. I've had, been on podcasts where they say it's actually Z. I said, you don't say JZ, do you? You say JZ. So I'll use Z. Fair anyway. enough. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. I'm not berating you, Emily. Tomatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's break it down. So you asked me, what is Generation Z? So let's, let's break it down. What is a generation first? So Cambridge Dictionary defines a generation as all people of about the same age in a society. So every say about 12 to 20 years a new generation occurs so when we talk about generation z who are they they if you teach children that were born between 1997 to 2012 that would be considered so basically between 8 and 25 years of age those would be loosely labeled as generation 
Z. Now, these are loose labels because, again, I'm a millennial or meant to be a millennial, but there's sub things in there. But it's just a way to highlight that. But why does it matter? Because we are all shaped by the generations that we kind of emerge from. So our beliefs, our language, our ideas about the world are molded by the times that we inhabit. So your worldview determines how you interact with reality. So there was a psychologist called William James in 1890, actually quite revolutionary psychologist. Many see him as the the founding father of modern psychology. And he said, in most of us, by the age of 30, the character will be set like plaster and it will never soften again. And now this was before having MRI scans. And there's actual scientific proof that he was absolutely right. He was spot on. So what happens is when you're growing up, your brain is, well, the, your brain is the most complex organism in a known universe or organ in a known universe. So it's expanding exponentially. That's why for, you know, kids find it easier to learn languages when they're younger because it's mm-hmm. constantly expanding, making connections. So what you tend to find with younger children is they tend to be more creative. They tend to learn more, um, new information quicker and they're more willing to adopt new ideas and worldviews. But after 25, something starts to happen. So our neural, so we've got something called a neural network. It becomes fixed. It becomes stuck. So whereas before, when you're younger, you'll lean more on our intuition and our creativity. This is where experience starts to sit in. Also, you've got something at the front of your a brain called the neocortex, which is a, f- a flat gray part of your brain. Uh, it's Latin for new brain. And this is the thinking or critical part of the brain. And what tends to happen is it tends to go online. It tends to mature. It's the last part of our brains to mature. So that's why you, I'm, I'm sure like me, you'll look back when you're 15, 16, think, what was I thinking? You weren't, uh, <laughs> yeah. you weren't, you weren't thinking um, because your mature part of your brain wasn't really activated. Now that's where the phrase, you can't teach a new dog old tricks comes into it. And our brains are quite lazy. Um, they always, they just want to go on the, the, the same path. That's why you just become stuck in your ways. Mm. Now I always say this, is I, f- I find this really, really interesting. So I'm going to ask you a question if you don't mind me. Uh, mind answering okay so what i want you to do could you name your favorite band or artist music artist and tell me the age that you first heard them so name your favorite band music artist and tell me the age that you first heard them let's do a quick experiment and guys listening on the podcast i want you to do this as well and i want you to think about this because i want to do something go for it you're asking a a music teacher to name their favorite band now this is the hardest (laughs) question Oh, um, and how? Right. Yeah, go on. So I would say I like Fleetwood Mac. Um, Fleetwood Mac. Okay, mm. that's great. How old were you when you first heard them? I could. I couldn't tell you. I, um, okay. Were you okay? Let me ask you this way: Were you a teenager? Were you a young child? A teenager? Young adult? Going to be a young young child. Young child. My dad was quite musical, so he had a lot of music in the house. So it was going to be around that time. Emily, I'll put you on the spot there. The reason why um, I do apologise, because you're thinking I don't want to reveal my personal Did I pass the test? You did, right? <laughs> so my favourite, if I look back on who I liked when I was a kid, there was a rapper called Nas um, mm-hmm. who I liked. And I was around 12, 13 years of age. Um, Biggie, I'm showing my age now. Now, the reason why I asked that question is um, Harvard psychologists did a research study about music and they said that most of us, uh, in terms of our music, which kind of goes in what I was just saying, uh, have we have our peak musical experiences between the age of 12 to about 24 after that we become fixed in our style we become fixed I in our music completely relate to that is that why i know every single 90s pop music word and i can't Absolutely. remember any lyrics post 1999 practically uh, 
Absolutely. So that's what they're saying. <laughs> we become stuck in our ways. So that's why you'll see I've become that old person. So when my nephew shows me some new music, I'm just like, this sounds like garbage because our brains is just fixed now. I'll just mm-hmm. listen like on Spotify. I listen to like the old school stuff. But that's just the way our brains are designed. And that's why you'll see even with our fashions, we stay, we almost stay fixed in a particular time period. Mm. So it's, it's, it's biological. You can't escape from that. But what you can do with the awareness is become more what we call generationally aware and more flexible. That's why on a more serious uh, setting, you'll find clashes between generations. You'll find that they start to argue because they're literally not on the same wavelength. That's why you see the insults of, oh, he's a millennial, he's a boomer, He's this. I saw on Twitter and I was actually getting quite upset because the uh, Generation Z, I'm I'm classed as a millennial, quote unquote, are trying to cancel Eminem. So they were talking about his lyrics and whatnot. And they're saying, should we be listening? So a lot of Generation um, Z are saying, um, you know, Eminem should be canceled. And there's a big debate. And the reason why this is happening is because we're literally not on the same wavelength anymore. And that is important to understand the context of what I was saying. I think that's... For me, though, I mean, I absolutely see that and completely recognise it, which is why you get lots of online arguments, I suppose, mm. from kind of older people who are saying, well, you lo- you don't know how it feels to go through whatever, or mm-hmm. you, you lot don't know anything these days. You know, we had it hard in our day. And, and so you mm. get these kind of um, generational arguments. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, very interesting because that then can translate to our understanding, can't it, of the people that we teach, the young people that we teach. Absolutely. And it helps us to understand what they're going through and it's not about us. So we can Mm -hmm. always kind of um, refer back to our time and have the expectations that we carry through from our generation. But actually, like you say, generations are shifting and expectations of those generations are shifting, whether that's good or bad, whether it's from their point of view or from our point of view. Yes. Um, so mm. why is it then? I mean, it's quite obvious, but why is it important for us to be able to understand them? Because if we're teaching a group of young people from a completely different generation with a completely different experience of life, mm. why do we need to understand them even more? Absolutely. That's a great question. Now, um, again, uh, drawing from my ebook, I'm going to uh, point you guys to a particular theory that I discovered. And when I when I discovered this particular theory, I was like, oh, my gosh, it explains what's going on right now. So basically, there's a model that was developed by authors and historians um, called William Strauss and Neil Howe. And it's, it's based on a 1991 book called Generations, um, which they chose to expand upon. And what they discovered, um, so they looked at history, is that they started to see certain patterns start to replay. Right. So they initially looked at American history and admittedly Western European history, but they found startling uh, similarities. So their theory um, and again, it, it, this particular book, the book, as I said, is called Generations 1991. It became it, it, it got notoriety because Steve Bannon, who was uh, Donald Trump's uh, advisor oh, yeah. at the time, mm-hmm. basically borrowed a lot of the things that he was pushing and the agendas that he was pushing were from this book. Now, I'm not saying that the book is evil, so to speak. It's like, how, is, how do I say? It's like putting a gun in the hands of a police officer or putting the guns in the hands of an armed robber. It's the same thing. But anyway, I got before I go in there. So I'm not saying the book is evil by any chance. Yeah. It's interesting. But what he said was, or what the, the, they believed in was that history tends to repeat itself and go through, um, it goes through a full cycle every 80 to 100 years. And in that cycle, it, there's four turnings, which they called seculums. 
Okay. Mm. Now, a seculin is a, is a phase. And this basically uh, aligns with what we're talking about, the emergence of a new generation. And what you find in these seculums is the generation will be opposed to the generation before. Now, what is interesting with what the time we live in, we live in a, a time because of healthcare and because, you know, people are living longer now, we've got literally almost four generations living at one time. Um, represented we still got boomers what is known as boomers so on and so forth so it's very very interesting time okay now each generation develops a persona which typifies their behaviors and norms and according to the theory there are four turnings i won't go too deep into them but i'll just give you a brief i was so Mm. interested in these so definitely definitely highlight Mm. them yeah thank you i try my best (laughs) Uh, well it's not my theory anyway i I nicked it but anyway i didn't nick it before they come after me um so (laughs) basically what you have, so I'll just describe the turning. So the first turning is is called the high turning. And this is usually after a big crisis or a big upheaval. So this is the first period after, you know, a crisis. And basically, this is where the beliefs in institutions are at its strongest. This is where they believe in the government. They believe in what they've been given and what they've been told. And it's interesting when they, um, the Pew Research Center, which is this American think tank, tracked um, every couple of years, they asked the American public, and they started this from the early 20th century. Do you have faith in your government? And the highest point where the American people had faith in their government was during World War II. 80% of respondents said, if the government tells me something, I believe it. Okay. But what ended up happening, it kind of fluctuated. But then Watergate happened and Nixon happened. And it, the public trust fell off a cliff because that was a huge scandal that mm. um, the president abused their power and it's never recovered. Even it doesn't matter what president, whether it's Democrat or Republic is never, ever recovered. Um, and it's very, very interesting uh, to look at that. So again, so th- this is where we're, we're, uh, people are more collective. Um, people are more willing to conform. Uh, and this is where a time of great economic growth or, you know, society is starting to expand again. So in our recent history, this would be what we call the baby boomer generation. And this was between like 1948 and 1963. So after the, you know, Germany, Nazi Germany was defeated. There was a huge expansion, huge technological expansion as well. Uh, especially in America and the West, Western Europe, there was a huge growth in the, the, the middle class. So, you know, people were affording a lot more things and everything was all good. Well, for some people anyway. So the awakening turning super quickly is where people tire of conforming. And this is where people start to look inside. They become to, uh, they become more individualistic, quote unquote. So questions start to be asked about the order of society. And they're still quite idealistic. They don't want to rip down the system. They just want to replace it with a new one. So again, in modern history, if you look at the 60s, especially, and again, I'll be referring a lot to American and European uh, times. So forgive me, I'm not just picking on it but anyway so if you look at the 60s for example this was the times where we had the free love movement the hippie movement the consciousness revolution uh obviously the civil rights movement as well talking about equality they weren't about pulling down the system especially typified Mm -hmm. by martin luther king they're about Mm -hmm. saying make it fair for everybody else and this was the mid 60s to the 80s if we're looking at america and we had that here as well okay and what's interesting if you look at the biggest preachers um in america they were born during this time Okay, so it's much about wow. it was more about spiritualism. So the unraveling turning is what is called the third turning, and this is where the questions that were were, were raised in the awakening turning, the second turning, were not answered. So the idealism turns to cynicism. Institutions start to look weak and corrupt, and they're more vulnerable. And this is where people start to openly attack them individually, and creativity are praised, and collective action is seen as naive. 
And what happens is society starts to fragment into distinct groups. Um, during this period, confidence in the future darkens and inequality seems starker. If you look in the 80s, where this was based on, uh, it, it, probably the unraveling, look at the films like the Robocop, Alien, I don't know, Terminator. It was about big corporations that abuse their power and basically are going to destroy the world. The corporate, the mega corporation became distrusted. Uh, and again, the period of time was defined by Thatcherism mm. and Reaganism. This was talking about the, the 80s and 90s. And if you're a millennial or an older millennial like myself, people said that unraveling could also be 9-11 as well because we are looking at terrorism and everything like that. So the 9-11 tax and war and terror it just the future seemed darker. It just it didn't seem as hopeful. And then what they said, the last one or the fourth t- fourth turning was the crisis turning. So this is where public trust in institutions are at all time low. Is the rise of populism and the overthrowing of uh, the establishment takes root. Societies become more polarized and discourse becomes more antagonistic. The processes that dealt with issues in previous turnings were, are perceived as ineffectual and dated. I.e., the government. The government can they fix it? No, they can't fix it. So. What's also the, the good part of this is where this is a time of great innovation. Artists and entrepreneurs take center stage. Um, young people start to rise up. And in a weird way, we become more collective. People start to band together to fight for causes. Of course, every single turning has their own crisis. But the difference is, is how each um, generation responds to those crises. Yeah. So in the fourth turning... The difference between all the other ones is whereas maybe, for example, millennials might say, oh, these are all rubbish, but hey, hold, this is the the best we can do. We, we just mm. have to work with it. People who are in the crisis turning will be like, no, we've got to rip the whole thing down. So clearly, when we look at um, this in modern history or recent history, it started r- roughly in the, the Great Depression. And then obviously the world wars that preceded it. And that's when everything got turned upside down. New systems had to be formed. And if you look at our current generation, we are on cue for a crisis. Mm. <laughs> we could say this is the crisis turning. Of course, if you look at 2020 alone, that was a was, was a t- very tumultuous w- year for the whole world. Um, you know, we had the, at the beginning, January, the assassination of the Iranian uh, general, people talking about World War Three. Then in February, if my memory serves me correctly, the Australian wild, wildfire. Then obviously COVID hit us in March. Lockdowns hit us in April. Uh, June was George Floyd and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. You had the American election and that was the most uh, bitterly contested election in recent history. Um, Obviously, Donald Trump. And again, it's not about politics. I'm not saying it's politics, but I'm saying that he was a very controversial figure, very contentious figure. On this side of the pond, we've got Brexit, you know, Boris Johnson, his government, accusations of this. So we are, you could say that we tick all the boxes for a crisis generation and the young people have had enough. Uh, and the young people are starting to rise up with things like Extinction Rebellion. Again, as I said, Black Lives Matter. We've got all these different types of groups forming and saying, look, if you're not going to do it, we are going to do it. Um, and, and this leaks into our, in our, into our classrooms. And we've got to understand that this is not going away. And again, part of the reason of that is because of social media and, and the like, which I can talk about next. Yeah, it's fascinating because as you're talking about it, I mean, I hadn't seen this theory until I read what you'd put about it. And I'm just like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And then getting to where we are now, which I would agree with you, the crisis turning, uh, where you're seeing factions of young people actually uh, trying to, you know, showing their non-conformity Um in the classroom as well as in their everyday lives because what i've you know my opinion is about education currently is that we are we are trying to replicate a victorian 
um, system. Model. Yeah, yeah, model uh, that doesn't fit today's young people. They don't ha- always, you know, when is that? When when do we sit in rows behind desks <laughs> anywhere else but school? And mm. we're, we're trying to mold them into something that has gone before. And maybe that worked back then. But mm. right now it's it's and I talk a lot about, you know, t- t- um, leaders of schools taking risks and yeah. kind of encouraging them to take risks, because for the sake of the generation they're teaching in front of them, we have to be adaptable. We have to show uh, flexibility in how we teach and how we approach these young people because they are on the cusp of something quite extraordinary. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just to add on what you're saying, one of my favorite phrases, this is one I've adopted is that we're teaching 21st century children in 18th century classrooms. I say that a lot too. Yeah. (laughs) If you, if I had a time machine, if I had a TARDIS and I went back to Victorian London uh, uh, at the start of our modern education system. And I took a Victorian teacher and said, come with me and I'm going to take you to a school. Apart from the whiteboard and maybe the speakers, he would understand exactly the context he was in and he probably could teach the same way. Now, again, what I'm saying is not conspiracy theory, but it's actually fact if you study education. The reason why we formed our education system was because of the, it was at the birth of the Industrial Revolution. If you look at things like Isambard Brunel, so on and so forth, we needed, we moved from an agricultural society into an industrial society. And the problem was that we did not have enough workers to be able to work the factories and to, you know, to buy the goods and so on and so forth. So we had to come up with an education system which basically allowed us to grade our students. So we'd say the A grade students clearly have a show a level of certain intelligence. They can go and run the machines. The D grade students can go and work in the forecourts. And that's exactly how we set our education system. So I'm glad you mentioned the rows because it was a factory system. Think about it. We're processing children. And again, another hero of mine is Sir Ken Robinson and his TED Talk, the late Mm. Sir Ken Robinson, should I say, may your soul rest in peace. And he spoke exactly about this. This is what really turned me on to education, where he said everything I'm saying, he said it more articulately. And he worked actually as a um, for policy, uh, education policy. And he said, we've got to change how we teach because we, 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 we're, we're, we're processing kids like this is industrial revolution when it's not. I, I was on a podcast. Not I was on a podcast. I was listening to a podcast um, by 8 Billion Ideas. And he had the technological officer for IBM, Alistair Stewart, whose daughter, I believe, is a head teacher. Uh, LinkedIn and they were talking about the changes and to cut a long story short LinkedIn because they look at all the jobs and everything they can see the trends and basically they're saying that 45% of jobs did not exist 15 years ago when they started so they're saying that we have to prepare our kids for jobs that mm. don't yet exist Mark Carney who was the the, pre, the former Bank of England did a research study in 2012 I could be wrong fact check me if I'm wrong but he basically said by 2030 30% of jobs that were traditional jobs would disappear and we're not talking just about the menial so-called quote-unquote blue-collar jobs. We're talking about white-collar jobs, things like accountancy, things like data yeah. input. We're already starting to see this retail. Nearby me, there's an Amazon Fresh store where it's got no, well, it's got very uh, a very small set of staff. You walk in there, you pick your items, you walk out. John Lewis, who's, you know, companies that have stood for hundreds of years are finding it hard to compete with the likes of Amazon. So we're no longer teaching our kids before we've got a model where we're teaching our kids to compete with John that lives in Gloucestershire or Ian that lives in Belfast. You're competing with an algorithm and our school system, I believe, is woefully unprepared for that. And we've got to change it. 
Absolutely. I, I'm I'm on the same page as you in terms of this because I was watching, um, you know, the, they do a, a series Back in Time for Tea, it used to be, and yes. this, this one is now Back in Time for School, and they've taken a group of <laughs> students right back to the Victorian times, set them up in a Victorian classroom, and moved them through the ages up to mm-hmm. the present day. And it's really, really interesting because not, not much changes other than... Mm you know, the kind of things that they get taught and um, the fact that the cane, you know, gets eradicated. Mm. Uh, There's so much similarity that it just doesn't change structure. They're still sat behind desks. They're still, um, you know, having to follow a set of rules. And all of these things, I think, you know, I I love it when I hear of schools doing things a bit differently. Like one of the Mm -hmm. popular things to do at the minute, isn't it, is to kind of increase students' cultural capital by Mm -hmm. giving them opportunities outside of the curriculum to to Mm -hmm. better their cultural capital, I suppose, in that sense. And yes, things might be, but it's still into a rigid timetable, into a very rigid structure of a day. We still have the six-week holidays, which were based on the time where those kids needed time off to help in the in the fields in the farms yes you know and it, that hasn't changed so nobody's looking at changing adapting to the generation and i find it mm-hmm. really interesting the fact that you say you know obviously we've got to teach for jobs that haven't e- haven't even been invented yet and mm-hmm. and skills that and one of the things that you talk about in your book is that you know mm-hmm. generation z are entrepreneurial they've Absolutely. got a smartphone in their hand that they mm-hmm. could start designing and selling t-shirts on and they don't even have to leave their room their their room they mm. could create music on their laptop and release that music to the public they mm-hmm. could make videos tutorial videos are the massive thing at the minute and it's we're just you know we want them to then sit down and teach whatever format we've got in front of us in terms of the curriculum and mm. they're way ahead of us sometimes absolutely Absolutely. Everything you're saying is, is just music to my ears because I don't know if, if current teachers will say this. I've, I've so many times kids will say to me, why am I learning this? Yeah. And it's again, it's not, a, I'm getting, I don't want to say particular subjects or whatnot. It's not about that, but it's like, as you said, we have got a smartphone and that smartphone is more powerful than the computers that put man on the moon. Yeah. It's a multimedia device right now. As you said, you can make music on it. You can send data on it. You can run a business off it. There's so many things. And as you said, our kids are really hot to trot on this. So if you look at people like Justin Bieber, if you know his story, he started on YouTube. He was literally singing songs on YouTube. A record producer um, picked him up and he became a global megastar. People like KSI, uh, who's a YouTuber, he became famous. I think his his network is like 80 million pounds. And he became famous by filming himself playing uh, FIFA, a computer game like, you know, FIFA. So, you know, these things are, are very real. So one of the things I talk about, as you said, is entrepreneurial, is that they've got an understanding that they, the traditional gatekeepers, they don't have to go through the traditional gatekeepers anymore. They can do their own things, whether it's, you know, if you look at music, you have to go to a record label, talk to an A&R. Now it's just do it yourself. And if you get a buzz, then somebody else can come through. You know, you can write your own books. You don't need to go to, to a, a traditional publisher. You can start your own business. And we have got to adapt ourselves to that in the sense that, our kids will challenge us. Um, also, yeah. if we look at the economy and the statistics of the economy, traditional jobs are actually going down. And in fact, it's, it's, it's I don't want to use the word terminal, but it's it's not coming back. In fact, when the government talk about um, jobs being created, these are from the gig economy. So these are short-term contracts that, you know, 
they don't have the same benefits and holidays of course as teachers we're we're insulated Mm. it made me really grateful to be a teacher because looking at a lot of my friends who got furloughed a lot of my friends who lost their job you know a lot of my friends so what they some companies have done is just say they had a fixed contract and a secure contract they say oh we're gonna we're gonna hire you but now it's gonna be a a six-month rolling contract and they're like but I've worked here for five years The, the security the traditional what I call the 40 40 plan 40 hours a week for 40 years and then you get a nice pension are gone it's never yeah. coming back mm-hmm. okay that what you, I, I just want to add on what you said earlier the whole thing of the working day the whole reason why we designed the curriculum is to imitate the working day but now most companies especially the tech companies are saying you never have to come back to the office again you yeah. can work shifts you can work so these are real things that are happening and our young people know that so what I say to teachers is um you know you've got to channel their aspirations you can't just squash it because um the problem is you're going to create more problems for yourself if you just say that's rubbish youtube is rubbish you're never going to make it and of course yes there's an element of luck to it if you do that you're going to make them adversarial because as i said the genie's out of the the, the bottle so teachers have to become better at what we call what i call bridging and i talk about that in my actual book action era teacher and basically what i describe bridging as is bridging is the way to use what they like to bridge it into your to connect it to your subject Okay, it's not if if we believe what we say in terms of pedagogy and we say that it's a a learner centered uh, pedagogy or learner centered curriculum or learner centered teaching. That's what we've got to do. So I gave the example of my ebook where I covered an English lesson for a while. Long story. Um, I was covering English lessons and they were doing a poem by Ted Hughes called Hawk, Hawk Roosting. And they couldn't really get this was year 11. They couldn't really get it. So I thought in my head, oh, Kanye West power because the themes are all about power and whatnot, what have you. So when I put power on, I got the lyrics. And by the way, I took out all the naughty bits for any of you SLT there. So don't worry about that. It was all the clean version of lyrics. I know someone said, oh, this is against policy safeguarding. There's always that person. I saw that the light bulb switched on and they were like, wow. Oh, so, you know, Ted Hughes is talking about this. Kanye West is talking about that. And the themes of power and whatnot. And you could see the light bulb just switched on. You know, it just switched on. So I teach citizenship and we're talking about Grenfell and we, you know, it happened. It was really touching and whatnot. And we're talking about, when we talk about equality and rights for all, this is the reason why. And that way you're, it's becoming intrinsic. They're like, ah, what I'm learning makes sense to my world. If we're just talking about algebra or again, I'm not picking on subjects. You've got to make it come alive. You can't just say, these are the facts. This is what's on your GCSEs because you're not going to motivate them you're not going to be able to get to engage them i absolutely and it's interesting as well because um i can't take credit for this i wish i could but one of my (laughs) my ex-students a lot of my ex-students actually who because i was i was teaching music so a lot Mm. of them i would say you know they'd say to me miss how do i you know uh get my music out there or how do because i would say you know go and do some open mics and stuff and then i kind of shifted it to mm. just put your stuff on youtube just go and record yourself and put you put yourself on youtube if you want and um obviously i talk about the safeguarding bits as well but mm-hmm. it was mainly just to give them that confidence of putting it out there and one of my students now my ex-students has i think about 13 million followers um on youtube he's got Brilliant. hits after hits after hits he's now so famous that he can walk through Bristol. He 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 does a open air piano in the middle of Bristol or wow. wherever he is in the the world. And now he's traveling the world and just playing the piano open air. But because he's so good, wow. he got so much um, exposure. And now he's YouTube famous. 
And I keep wow. thinking, hello, I'm your music teacher. Please can you recognize <laughs> me? Like, I feel so, you know, I just want that little bit of credit. But no, I can't take any because he's incredibly talented. But mm. it's it brings us to the point, though, doesn't it, of mm. these kids are steps ahead of us. We're just getting used to what TikTok is and how to open mm. it and to make it not be loud as soon as I open it. And, mm-hmm. you know, what am I watching? I don't understand. What, what dance are they doing? These kids mm-hmm. are steps and steps ahead. And in their entrepreneurial um, world, you know, miss, I've got a business on the side selling whatever I've made mm. or what t-shirts I've printed or and we should be mm. teaching these skills as well equally mm. they talk about being pessimistic to authority mm. and that makes sense too mm-hmm. because again we're, we're we're kind of doing this Victorian model of like sure. I'm the teacher you're the child what I mm. say is right and everything that I say is is the most important and you're you've got kind of no say in it um, mm. And if you misbehave, you can't be in my space. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. I mean, um, just to add on to that, absolutely. Um, and it kind of ticks ticks the boss box what we're talking about the crisis turning. Yeah. So Deloitte, um, who it's a it's a huge company. I think it's mm. it deals in basically finance, but it also deals in um, a lot of data and taking things and and looking at society. So Deloitte run their own study. And they were now um, interviewing older Generation Z. So older Generation Z would probably be university level now, uh, first or second year. Um, We've had them for a little bit now. But they were saying that, they asked them, how much faith do you have in the government? And only 12% said they had any faith that the government would be able to turn around any of the crisis situations that that we're in. 12%, Mm. okay? Um, So a lot of young people are very disenchanted. Um, Remember... As I was saying earlier, you 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 are the times that you grew up in. So, for example, maybe for you and me, Emily, uh, I'm not guessing you. You're 21 forever anyway. Um, <laughs> but I'm okay. sure that I know that we what I what I'm presuming or I talk about myself anyway. I grew up in the backdrop of 9/11 and how that changed everything and my 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 views on the geopolitical views and so on and so forth. And that changed the way we think about the world. Okay, before 9/11. I felt relatively safe. I remember distinctly feeling like, you know, everything's okay. But now there was that whole thing of fear of terrorism and so on and so forth. So, you know, small little habits. I don't know if you do this, but, you know, if someone's on a train, you are profiling, you know, is he got a big bag or, or she got a big bag? Do they look suspicious? That's a hangover from something that happened 20 years ago, right? We never felt the same about oh, a comedian joke that if somebody left their bag on a train before 9-11, you'll be like, I'm going to have some of that. you're gonna be like yeah Yeah. (laughs) if you see a lone bag (laughs) exactly you're gonna look in there but if you see in a lone bag you know Mm. you're panicking you're thinking why is that bag and i don't see any owners you know so that's our backdrop when we Mm. look at our young people the backdrop they've had to face is uh, you know 2012 the london riots then you're looking at brexit i think brexit is going to be a real watershed moment for our young people and they looked at the way that it was handled i'm not i'm not saying Brexit is good or bad. I'm not talking about that, but if we, we can all agree, the way it was handled was shambolic by yeah. both sides or all sides of the political spectrum. Mm. You know, Joe Cox, the MP, was murdered over this. You know, regardless yeah. of your politics, we have to agree that murdering our MPs is 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 completely wrong. So I think that our young people have just lost faith, especially with the political discourse and everything like that. So again, I say to people, we live in an interesting time because a young person can pick up their phone, can go to Twitter, Boris Johnson's Twitter, and say, you know, you can beep, 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 
Yeah. That is unique in human history. We never had yeah. access to power like that. If mm. you went back in the Winston Churchill's time and tried to swear at him, you're probably going to get a good throttling minimum yeah. or could be arrested. If you mm. went back three, four hundred years ago, you would be locked up in the Tower of London for insulting the king or the queen. So mm. the gap between those who govern us and the governed are, is, is, is becoming thinner and more and more blurred. So if they can do that to Boris Johnson, what more can they do to you as a teacher? So if you're coming with that attitude of, I'm the teacher, you do what I say, you're going to get a lot of beep, 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 beep. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? You're going to get a lot of that back. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I've seen mm. that. Um, I, I I don't want to go, oh, I was amazing teacher. Mm. But, you know, the, the stance that I always took was, I am here to just be with you and help you learn. Mm. I'm not more important than you. In fact, I learned so much from the young people uh, mm-hmm. And now I'm out of teaching. I really miss that aspect of it. But I think that's maybe because I'm a bit like them at heart anyway, because I'm a bit of a rebel and I don't really like authority either. So I'd mm. kind of like be on their side a little bit, kind of encouraging the rebellion Absolutely. rather than discouraging it. Um, mm. I get really heartwarmed when I see young people standing up out of their own um will i suppose where they stand up for injustice because they have a real sense of injustice at the minute don't they and Mm -hmm. we see it in the school strike that greta thunberg um started Mm -hmm. we see it in black lives matter in pride even Mm -hmm. um lots and lots of movements where young people are kind of attaching themselves to and finding their identity and Mm -hmm. yeah standing up and saying we don't want to live in a future that you're creating for us so we're going to try and turn that around as much as we can and I think it's mm. it's kind of on two levels I want them to I want them to kind of engage in politics because I, they're the future voters so mm. it kind of relies on them to be informed so that we live in the you know the existence that we'd like to as well but mm-hmm. at the same time you know we've got to we've got to encourage that that uh, individuality I suppose as well so I'm I'm kind of yeah I'm up for the revolution I'm kind of I'm ready I'm ready for the rebellion bloodless bloodless yeah, revolution yeah, yeah yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> we'll do it I don't know how it'll look but I'm kind of excited about it um mm. we're kind of running out of time a little bit I sure. could talk about this for days and I just think it's so important and I think you know if there's one thing that we can take away from this it's to I suppose to challenge school leaders about how their curriculum content, mm-hmm. their, you know, the the attitudes, the 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 perspectives that they go in from, about mm-hmm. looking deeper than the humans in front of them that may not be conforming to exactly our expectations. <clears throat> Excuse me, about having a better understanding of the generational phases and of the generation who's sat in front of you, because. Um, it's so interesting when you get your head into it and you write a lot about this. And so I want to give you an opportunity to kind of tell people how they can get, find out more, how they can get in touch with you, what they can do sure. to become a bit better at what's going on already. Sure. Um, so just to, to end it off. So, cause I, I always believe in one thing I hate is when people give lots of fluffy in the air ideas and concepts but nothing practical it drives me mad it's like you're yeah. telling me all these things but you're not telling me what to do yeah I would say a couple of tips from my experience and again I'm not the know-all I'm not the genie I'm not the guru I, I, I this is just experience that I've learned from 
Number one is that I believe relationships are more important than ever. Forming relationships with yeah. with your students. And I always say my North Star in teaching is that, uh, no one will care how much you know until they know how much you care. I say that almost nice. every single time. You can be Elon Musk of, I don't know, engineering. You could be the Leonardo da Vinci of art. You could be the Cristiano Ronaldo of PE. But if your kids don't feel they, that you care about them, and again, this is part of the trend because now even celebrities understand the power of things like social media and they will talk to their fans, all right? So mm. they, 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 our young people are used to that level of interaction, especially with people that is perceived as higher. But if you don't have that interaction with your young people, you're never going to engage them. Yeah. Never so going important. to engage them. It's so, so important. So please work on relationships. I've got blogs um, on my website, which I'll tell you in a minute. So that's one tip. The other tip is when our young people say why, be absolutely honest with them don't be frightened to have difficult conversations about things i think we tend to shy away from from having these difficult conversations i've had a lot of difficult conversations um, myself especially you know when it comes to black lives matter even things like the lgbtqia plus community there's lots of things that young people have told me and i've had to re-educate myself because i assumed i knew things things even like what's happened with sarah everard you know after that happened i didn't realize what women as a male as a as a heterosexual male cisgendered male what women had to to go through so i had to re-educate myself so what i'd say to teachers is don't be shy and don't shut down these conversations because if you're willing to have those conversations you'll find that they, they'll they'll look at you and say you know what miss or sir or whatever they're all right i can let them in into my world and you're building a, i call it coaching over teaching yeah, yeah because it's not about absolutely. just giving information they can get that information off their phone. So when a young person says to me, why do I need to know Henry VIII or whatnot or whatever they say, I say, okay, fine, you can look at it on the phone, but how do you know that's good information? Yeah. It's Wikipedia, right? You know I can change Wikipedia. So the conversation starts to shift. That's what we're trying to teach you is how to get good information. Looking at a YouTube video, you don't know if it's good quality or bad quality. And that's where mm -hmm. conspiracy theories and things start. So that's the tips I'll leave you with, if anything. Show that you care about them. Have those difficult conversations. And also be willing to adapt and re-educate yourself. Th those three things, you could do that, you'll be all right. So um, where you can find me, uh, go to actionheroteacher.com, all correct spelling. Uh, that's my website. It's got all my links to the ebook, which is free. You can go and read it for yourself. You can buy my book. It's on Amazon. Um, I'm very, very active on Twitter, at actionheroteach. I couldn't get the ER there. So that's me, at actionheroteach. And then please engage with me. I'm on Insta, but I'd never use it. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, a supermodel. So, you know, there's no point in that. So, yeah, that's where you can find me. But I'm very, very active on Twitter. So come and find me on Twitter at Action Hero Teach. Yeah, you should definitely get in touch with Carl and he can help you if you need some help with kind of re-exploring your attitudes and curriculums and perspectives, I'm sure. So, Carl, thank you so much uh, thank you. for this conversation. I've, I've loved every minute of it. and I, I could do it for many many more minutes <laughs> at the time but um listen keep in touch um Definitely. thank you for all you're doing thank you for the work that you're doing really appreciated here and uh we'll speak to you soon i hope absolutely thank you very much for having me take care thank you so much take The Leaders Team podcast is brought to you from the Leaders Team at Twinkle. We help leaders lead. Check us out at twinkle.co.uk forward slash SLT.